Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of Boss Builder Podcast is brought to you by Boss Builders University. Now, for many of you, you are in a role that may be fairly new to you and might be finding yourself in places where you don't really know what to do next. And right now, getting training is pretty darn impossible. Fortunately for you, we have an option that I believe will be very, very useful. If you check us out at bossbuildersuniversity.com, you'll find a link to Boss Builder Academy. This allows you, using a time slot of maybe five to seven minutes per week, to get the basic knowledge and skills that you need to be successful in this role. Check us out at bossbuildersuniversity.com. Now, for some of you, you may be struggling now that your workforce might indeed be remote and communication is a challenge. Well, that's not going to go away anytime soon, but fortunately, we have a guest today who is going to help us build better connection through better conversations. Our guest is Chad Littlefield. He's the co-founder and chief experience officer of We and Me, Inc., an organization whose mission it is to create conversations that matter. Leaders call Chad when they want to amplify connection, belonging, and trust in their organization. Forbes calls Chad a global expert on asking questions that build trust and connection in teams. He's a TEDx speaker. He's the author of The Pocket Guide to Facilitating Human Connections and the creator of We Connect Cards, which are now being used to create conversations that matter on campuses and companies in over 80 countries around the world. Most recently, Chad and his partner, Will Wise, launched their new book, Ask Powerful Questions, Create Conversations That Matter, which is now an Amazon number one bestseller. So he knows his stuff. He's a great guy to chat with. You're going to love it. So why don't we quit talking about the man? Let's talk to him. You know what to do. Let's buckle up. It's time for us to hit that road. Welcome to the Boss Builder Podcast. Chad Littlefield, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. It's uh we're, we're introduced through through Michael Dietrich Chastain, who has been on our show a couple of times. And I think, not sure, but I think Michael might know every single human being on this planet. It's possible. Uh, he's, uh, I think, one of the reasons we've connected. He shares the passion of asking good questions. And uh, I think we live in a world that's uh, got a question deficit. And so when you meet somebody who's curious about you and inter- you know more interested than interesting, um, tends to make good connections. Michael's a good guy. So. Well, I think the topic is important too. You know, right now we've got more questions than answers. So until we get some answers, I guess we better figure out better questions. And with that comes a whole list of things that I'd really like to talk about today. But before we go down that path, I was wondering, Chad, if you could share something about your background with us and how you got started doing what you do. Yeah, I'll share. Uh, so when I was half the height that I am now, um, I saw the movie Patch Adams with Robin Williams, who really aspired to become a doctor to, uh, in, in, from my lens, to promote the quality of life over quantity. And I kind of had everything mapped out. I was going to be Patch Adams, pre-med. I was thinking maybe pediatrician. Uh, and then I took a chemistry class at Penn State and said, oh, maybe 10 more years of this is not going to work out. Um, but I was still really, I was enamored with the way that he was able to heal people through human connection and just his ability to empathize and reach people. And I, I came across a, um, so in my, in my pivot of studies, 
came across a John Hopkins study, actually, that was done in 2001, where they took uh, surgical teams and got them together. And they um, simply had some teams uh, connect before surgery. So they, you know, from the anesthesiologist to the techs to the actual surgeons, they just got around in a circle, introduced themselves and shared any concerns they had for the surgery. And on the teams that did that, on the teams that connected before content, um, the amount of deaths and medical errors were reduced by 35% um, just by that simple check-in. And so I was in that moment, I was like, ooh, maybe, maybe this Patch Adams thing isn't actually just Hollywood. Maybe there's something uh, to this. So set out outside of a medical context to figure out what's the impact of um, you know, the questions we ask, the conversations we have, and the way that we uh, connect and build rapport in a in a business context and an educational context as well. So now you are you you have a company. So tell us what your company specifically does then. Yeah. So uh, seven years ago, I started a company called We and Me with my co-founder, Will Wise. And we exist on the planet to make connection and engagement easy for people. Um, because we, what we've noticed is I haven't met a single person on the planet who ha- who doesn't have too much to do in too little time. And so connection is one of those things that often feels frivolous of like, oh, I don't like, I've got too much work to get to serious business to um, get down to. Like we don't have time for like icebreakers or team building. And I actually agree with that. I agree that uh, people can't uh, afford to necessarily invest in that. And so, but I would strongly um, advise and encourage folks to be really deliberate about the way that they connect. So um, on a, on a very practical level, there's two sides to um, our business. On one hand, Will and I get to, um, in non-COVID times, travel around the world, um, help running workshops in how to make um, engagement easy and uh, how to ask powerful questions and create connection before content and just build that culture of connection into the fabric of their work in a way that doesn't take lots of time, but does have lots of uh, impact on the uh, the way that the organization operates, the way that teams function. Um, and then the other half of our business is um, we've created a little bit more scalable, we've created a number of uh, tools. So a couple card decks and written a couple books that are packaged together into this connection toolkit um, that is much to our surprise, to be honest, is, um, is being used in 80 countries around the world by hundreds of organizations from uh, Disney and Crayola to smaller tech companies that you, their apps are downloaded on your phone and um, all over the place. And they're, and they're using it really to um, help make connection easy for their teams. Um, because I think one of the greatest things a leader can do for folks is for their team is assume the social risk for them to have difficult conversations and to have those more meaningful conversations that lead to um, connections and openness and, uh, what Google uh, and Amy Edmondson at Harvard would call psychological safety, which has been found to be the number one predictor of high-performing, innovative teams. Um, so we help people build psychological safety and make connection easy for them. So that's a big term. Tell me about what exactly is psychological safety? Because we know what OSHA safety is, which is a whole bunch of boring training sessions. But what about psychological yeah, it's an interesting one. So the, uh, this term, uh, Amy Edmondson, who's a, a researcher at Harvard, uh, sort of uh, not coined the term, but popularized the term. And Google, a few years ago, did a, a huge study internally. Um, and, you know, Google's a company that likes data, right? They like your data. Yeah, they uh, love they like my data. data. Yeah, they love your data. Yeah. Um, and so they also love their employees' data. And so they've got 100,000 plus employees around the world, and they launched this big project to figure out what are the 
top characteristics of the highest performing teams at Google. And the number one characteristic that came back was the degree of psychological safety, which is basically the PhD academic term for uh, interpersonal trust. Can I be myself when I show up at work? Can I say what's on my mind and trust that my colleagues will hear that and constructively build me up, even if they're offering feedback? Um, or do I need to kind of watch my back and expect gossip to happen um, in, a, in a given place? And do I feel comfortable sharing an idea in a brainstorm? Or do I trust that when I share an idea that the boss is just going to shoot it down anyway and to say, oh, no, we tried that in 1984 skip who's got a better idea right mm-hmm. um and so the that degree of psychological safety is again basically the your interpersonal um comfort level in a given team to be able to show up as yourself and bring your full self and contribution to work it's interesting because a lot of companies that we've done business with we hear this we want to change our culture and the first one they say is we want to be a google or they say they want to be a disney And I think when people hear Google, what they visualize is the free food and the pool tables and meditation rooms and all this other frilly kind of stuff. But you make the case, I guess, based on that research, that it's more than that. It's that connection with a person's boss, right? And and in fact, uh, Perks was not even on the top five list. um, Well, that's what outsiders can look at and see. Like, we want to be a Google. Well... (laughs) I think you probably find disgruntled people at Google too. Yeah, However, whole bunches of them. Really <laughs> yeah. smart, disgruntled people too. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah and but I, I think this is a really interesting uh, connection, though, that it's beyond just the perks. Yeah, it's beyond just the perks. And actually, if you look at um, and you can you can Google the study. It's called Project Aristotle. So if you're listening, anybody can just pop into Google Project Aristotle and read. Um, the New York Times did a really lovely uh, article kind of outlining the the high level learnings and Google makes available a lot of their organizational development uh, kind of data and, and programs make them freely accessible um, for the world. So you can access this and look at the top five characteristics, but um, almost all of them are social, emotional in nature. They're all, they're almost all of them have some component to how we relate and connect to each other. Because as you know, um, uh, the boss matters a whole bunch, right? When we, uh, I've, I've never uh, heard anybody say, Oh, I, you know, I, really, really don't like my job. Um, or, or, sorry, I, I really, I really like my job, but I have a terrible boss. Mm-hmm. And so, but I, it's cool. I'm going to just kind of bite that bullet and and stay here for 30 years and be loyal to the company. <laughs> no, right. That is the, not unless you're not. in the military and you're locked in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think you know something about that. Yes. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm actually curious, you know, before we went online, we had a brief chat and you shared, uh, that you almost, and I don't know how frequently you've shared this on your podcast, but share that you almost killed your, or almost attacked or beat up. No, no, killed, killed right there. I was visualizing your, uh, supervising officer. I'm curious what it was like for, if I can take my own medicine a little bit and ask you a question. I'm curious what it was like for you to, uh, to have that strong of a feeling and to, at the same time, feel like you don't have a choice to leave. You don't have an opt out. Cause yeah, that was, well, that I think that's what made it worse. And, you know, I joined the Navy right out of high school pretty much. And so I, you know, I didn't really have jobs before that. And so it's just like, you're kind of stuck here, but I think it's the personal torture of just knowing that, that 
aside from dying, there's nothing that's going to change your scenario. And the good news is, is it teaches you not to quit stuff because you really don't have the chance. But I can just remember, you know, Sunday night is a classic example. I can't sleep because I'm so stressed out about Monday. And years ago, uh, I mean, this is a long time ago. Um, I remember there was a song by Johnny Cash and it was called Oni. And he was singing about his boss and how for 30 years his boss was just always harassing him. And today's the day he's going to retire. So at four o'clock today, he's going to finally have it out with his boss. And I thought, God, that's my life right now. And it was tough. And, you know, I was good at what I did and we were successful as far as I could see as a unit, but it's what drove everybody's morale down, not just mine. It was my job to protect my 22 direct reports from that animal. And so it was hard and no rapport and certainly no good relationship. And Truthfully, as I was visual, and this happened in, you know, it happened in a split second, but it's one of those things as I'm visualizing grabbing him around the neck and squeezing him till his eyeballs popped out. I mean, it was very graphic, but that's how frustrating it was. So, yeah. man, you're making me stress out right now, Chad. Holy cow. Better read your book or something. <laughs> I get, I can feel the pulse, uh, pulse raising a little bit. You know, yeah, my, it's uh, funny, you real, I just, I can, I can visualize it. There's sometimes I can hear sounds, I can smell things and it just brings it all. That is quite traumatic, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I, I think anytime as human beings that we don't, we don't feel like we have any choice, um, what starts, you know, manipulation starts to, uh, enter the scene. And one of the foundational things that we talk about, if you want to create a conversation that matters and create a, a real connection, you've got to be crystal clear about your intention in that interaction. Because, uh, when you're not clear about, uh, in, intention, manipulation has a way of, um, nobody likes to have no autonomy and, uh, uh, be, be pushed into doing something. You know, um, Daniel Pink talks about in his book drive about human motivation. The three aspects are, are keys to motivation. And one of them is autonomy, um, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. And I, um, was speaking with him one time and he shared something that I thought was really interesting because autonomy is tough when you think about industries like uh, or HR or the military or surgery, right? And, you know, in some ways, if you're getting your knee replaced, you don't really want your surgeon to have autonomy and like to be creative about how they go about that. You kind of like want to make sure they don't leave gauze in you when they sew you up, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things he, um, Daniel Pink said that I really appreciated was there's a spectrum of autonomy that uh, the autonomy for a surgeon might be you get to choose what font your checklist is in uh, versus, you know, somebody in a more creative open position, you get a lot more autonomy. I think that's relevant for as leaders to think about, even when we're talking about compliance or people, uh, you know, these are things you have to do, uh, whether it's because you're under contract in the military or because it's a rule or it's a legal thing or a policy what are the ways that we can introduce the, you know, on the low spectrum of autonomy and choice so that people are choosing their own path? Because the more that we push people down a path and, and kind of, and, and when I say push, you could substitute that word for manipulate, uh, which is just a more aggressive or intense word. But the more we manipulate people down a path, the more resentment and disengagement and turnover starts to show up, I think. Yeah. Just, I, I haven't, um, haven't heard anybody like you share that Mac that, uh, in the military and having that strong um, 
feelings before. So, well, I think it's, it's maybe it's just my kind of how I'm wired because now, you know, having my own company, it's really nice. I love not having people tell me what to do. And every now and then Rachel or Lisa will, you know, they'll say something, you know, like uh, Rachel says, well, I, I really don't like the way you did that video ask. And a part of me is like, well, who the hell do you think you are? <laughs> <laughs> but then I realized she knows her stuff. That's why I have her on my team. Cause she understands what you should and shouldn't do when you're trying to promote things. Mm. So it's different then, but maybe it's just me with a lot of hangups wanting to, you know, just kind of chart my own course and do what I like to do. And there's others who that way of life they're comfortable with, you know, my wife, for example, she did 30 years in the Navy and she loved every minute of it. And she later started her own business doing financial advising. And one of the things that she did not like is having the autonomy. She says, I just kind of like when somebody tells me what I need to do and I just get it done. So maybe there's a personality piece of that. But, you know, if there was, you know, if you could take a person who's right down the middle, it makes sense that if you can give somebody at least some feeling, some semblance of having a little bit of autonomy, they'll respond. You know, that's why most people, well, some people hate air travel, right? Like, I feel like that's what I hear. I feel like I'm helpless here. Mm -hmm. And I'm always thinking, well, why don't you just knock on the cockpit door and ask the pilot if you can take the wheel for a while? (laughs) 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 Of course, then they say, well, no, no, that's not what I meant. But it's that feeling of I don't have any control and uh, and autonomy and choice. I think those are those are great tools. Yeah, autonomy and uh, choice, and I think uh, communication also enters the scene. So to continue the metaphor, the uh, pilot, I've been on a plane that had such bad turbulence that uh, people's heads were hitting the ceiling and people were having nervous breakdowns in the back and the pilot and any staff weren't saying anything throughout the even even after the turbulence subsided but i've also been on flights where uh pilots have been really clear saying hey we've got some big turbulence coming up be buckled up this is what's going to happen it's going to last about five to ten minutes and then we should be out of the system and we'll be smooth sailing from there and the difference between those like even though i i'm not driving the plane i have no autonomy and where we go i feel like i'm a part of the process a lot more and i for some psychological reason i perceive flight number two as a lot safer and in in control in actually my control even though it's not in my control at all um and so i think autonomy sometimes is a um, not it, it can be a perception thing not just a material like you actually get to choose yes or no um, in that case but on that note because turbulence for a pilot I've, i've just read that it's more of an annoyance for them versus a passenger, it could be terrifying unless you're used to flying quite a bit. What are your thoughts about sharing bad news with your team? Especially now we're in a 2020 is the year of the bad news. When was the last time you heard some good news? Yeah. <laughs> and as a, yeah, as a, a leader, when's the last time that you delivered good news? Uh, <laughs> the words furloughs and layoffs are more popular than uh, raises and promotions right now, I think. True. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think in delivering bad news, again, this word um, intent or intention comes back for me. And one of the things as we were uh, writing the book, Ask Powerful Questions, we dug up, we got a little nerdy for a minute. And the root of the word intent or intention means uh, the, in Latin uh, to stretch or stretching. And I love that because I think that really good intent 
intentions, and these are very different for me than a goal or a purpose necessarily, um, or an objective. An intention uh, stretches to include the needs of everyone involved. And so I think, you know, when I think about uh, a boss needing to say, hey, we've got to furlough you for three months, the company will not survive if we just pay everyone's salary for the next three months, right? But so when you got to deliver that news, the intention, like incorporating, think about the other person's needs, like the pilot is used to turbulence and you might, this might be your fifth, your fired conversation that you've had today or, or what, you know, fifth difficult conversation and you're used to it, but mm-hmm. just taking Two, even two seconds. It doesn't have to be a long time. Two seconds to just empathize real quick. Like what's going on in this person's mind? Like, do they have kids? Like, are they worried about that? Does their, uh, does their husband work? Does their wife work? Does, you know, how's this going to uh, play out for them? And being able to acknowledge all of that and say, I see you. And we still have this difficult conversation um, that needs to happen is I think, again, is a very different conversation than the approach of I'm going to be super detached and I can't get emotionally invested at all. And let me, you know, stay separate and, uh, from this person's issues. I think to do that is to turn that person into an object rather than to see them as a person. And I, I think you can do that. You can fire somebody and see them as an object and you can fire somebody and see them as a person. And they have very different uh, ripple effects on both ends. Well, I think it's a mindset too. And I had a boss once that he would say things like, I need two bodies on that problem over there. Or even when I hear the word and HR people use this too, when they want to sound important, they'll say human capital, right? (laughs) It's a fancy name for what? Humans? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) People spending their time away from family and friends doing work. Yeah, there you go. I mean, what a way to take the emotion out of it, which maybe the intent is that it's going to be easier for me to make hard decisions, especially if I don't think about how it impacts you. But that's been a part of work culture for a very long time. And, you know, I could talk to my mom and she could tell me stories. And when my dad was around, he would tell me stories that things were very different back in the back in the day, I guess, where you're just expendable. You're just another uh, just another piece of the machine. And now things are a little bit different, and we could also throw into the fact that, you know, aside from what's happened this past year, we've seen a, a real generational shift as people retire off and new people kind of come in. But it seems like the cultures of work are, they're, they're interested in this, which goes back to, I want to have a Google culture, or I want to have a Disney culture. But beyond that, it seems like it would be something as simple as just building some sort of relationship with our team. Is that, did I oversimplify it? Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think it's that simple. And w- the lens that I would add to it is, you know, if you want to lose 25 pounds, I would not recommend going to the gym on Monday for 12 hours, right? You're going to injure yourself and you're not going to accomplish that aim. I would recommend considering being active for 20 minutes a day and trying to eat a little bit less each meal. And so I think that's the reason the phrase I offered at the very beginning of this idea of connection before content for me, that is the the workout plan for an organization to develop a, a culture of connection. So it's not about, um, let me ask this person one time how their kids are doing and then trust that I've connected with them and that it's all good. Connection before content is the um, the idea that in, you know before either a one-to-one or especially a, a group gathering, you're spending at least a few minutes being intentional about 
connecting before content. Now the different or the ingredients for that, and this, this makes it very different to me than just chit chat or small talk or shooting the breeze with somebody. I think the difference or the, the, the ingredients of connection before content that makes it so different is that um, not only should it uh, connect people to each other, it's got to connect to the purpose of why you're actually there. So I just led a a virtual workshop for Crayola yesterday. And the purpose of us being there was to talk about um, how to make virtual engagement easy. How do you make virtual meetings uh, more energizing, empowering, you know, turn people into contributors as opposed to um, just consumer, passive consumers, or maybe even worse, critics. And so the connection before content that I did at the beginning of that workshop was splitting people up into breakouts on Zoom to just quickly share one of the things uh, that one of the things that a leader did in the best, most engaging, most impactful Zoom meeting they've had in the last four months. Right. So that connection before content allows them to share and connect personally, but it also connects to why we were there at that time. And I think that's where a lot of resentment or pushback or resistance for connection comes from is like, why are we doing this? Like, what's the point? What's the purpose? Um, at least on the other end, especially if you're in the role of, you know, HR or you're, or you're the boss, e- when you get called into somebody's office, there's a little bit of a, depending on the, the company you work for, the organization you work for, there's a little bit of an expectation or a fear of like, okay, what, like, why did I get called to the principal's office to use mm-hmm. your words from earlier, Mac? Yeah. Um, and I, when you, when you're quote called into the principal's office and the principal says, Hey, how the kids doing today? Mm. <laughs> that feels that feels really off um right whereas connection before content connected to why you've brought them in you know to and so if let's go back to the furlough example if you're bringing them in for that tough furlough conversation or that tough layoff conversation to say um hey we've got a really tough conversation to um have we've got to make uh f- furloughs happen and i want to check in like how are you doing and how is family going to fare in all of this? That's a not small talk um, to begin with that. Not, not, I shouldn't write that down. Don't, don't write that down in stone. That's not an advice to exact right. advice to have that tough conversation. But the point is um, I think oftentimes we try to connect, but it's not connected to why we're actually there. And so their resistance shows up because people, we feel like uh, someone's trying to build trust with us so that they can get us to do something something like that. So I guess a lot of it would be timing then. Um, We don't start that. So, you know, we hear a lot of people say, well, when you give feedback to an employee, you want to, you want to do the Oreo cookie, right? You want to start with the good and then you, you tell them the bad stuff they did and then you want to wind up with something positive. And, you know, everybody's like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. Except if you're the recipient and you've been in the office a number of times, you know, so you just kind of ignore the, the, you know, made up sort of positive thing, waiting for the middle of that, which you know is going to be bad. And then by then you're so pissed, you don't hear the other half of the cookie. Yeah. And that's, that's how it's normally done. And, you know, of course, what we try to do in our programs is make that not happen. Mm. But when should we start this now, Chad? Because I mean, right now we just can't, it seems to me you just can't turn on a dime. Like if my boss, the one I almost killed, one day said, Petty House in Monroe, it's so good to see you. How's your wife doing? How's your kids? I'm like, what the hell's wrong with you? What are you smoking? <laughs> you know? So yeah. how, how can we do that, Chad, without sounding like we're trying too hard 
or yeah. you scare so, people thinking, oh, shit, something bad's going to be coming down because he's really different today. Yeah. And, and I would, um, to clarify, I would say if, if your um, officer were to say how the wife and kids today, um, that would, I would actually not clarify that. I would not categorize as, that as connection before content because it doesn't connect to the purpose of why ever you're in that interaction right now. Mm-hmm. And so um, for for me, one thing, if you're going to start doing this and you recognize like, okay, typically I'm a pretty task focused person. It's not my default to think about the humanity and the personal element to all of this. Um, then I would say that one ingredient that has a different, that uh, single-handedly, I, I would say has the power to differentiate between a conversation that matters and one that doesn't is the presence of natural, genuine curiosity. So it sounds like from your officer that he might've been asking that because somebody told him to, but I'm not guessing that he would have been really naturally, genuinely curious about it. No, so if you're probably read, that, it, read it in some kind of management article or something or leadership. Yeah. Article. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, uh, even the least smart people are pretty smart at picking up on, uh, genuine curiosity versus acting out of obligation. So, uh, my, my, Quick, quick, quick tip would be uh, when you show up to work the next day or you're in the next Zoom meeting, what are you naturally, genuinely curious about? From everything that they've you know shared in the last time you got together, from what you see in their Zoom background, is there a picture on the wall? It's something that's actually present and in the moment. Um, and the, the one of the tools that we talk about in the book is following your natural curiosity based on what someone's wearing, carrying, sharing, or presenting. And the reason we... Uh, highlight those four things is because there's something that's actively present in the environment. They're not just like pulling in the score of some random sports game that happened a couple nights ago or pulling in a random question about your family that isn't present in that moment. Um, and so there's a little bit, it f- somehow feels a little bit uh, more safe or accessible to ask somebody about something that they're they're already actively sharing um, visibly in the environment, which uh, a little bit of an odd tool, but having taught it to uh, tens of thousands of people. Um, I always say, don't believe me, believe it's stupid and try it with three people and just see what happens. Um, And it's phenomenal uh, how the tool has the ability to safely access who somebody is rather than, you know, just what they do or some, some random uh, conversation, rut, small talk sort of uh, dialogue. It seems like when we went to virtual world that a lot of that would probably end because you could go into a corporate environment and you could walk past somebody's desk or cubicle and you might see things, a picture or a trinket or whatever. And then you could build a conversation around it. But I'm starting to see too, the more that we are doing virtual meetings that people initially I could see people kind of, you know, they were tightening up and they'd have a nice area they would work in. Now I think people have pretty much just said whatever. And, you know, they might show up without, you know, so I hope Rachel's not listening to this, but we did a morning meeting and it's like she just got out of bed and her hair was all over the place. And I don't really care about that. But, you know, she's gotten comfortable. Maybe we've all gotten comfortable to where when this is over with and we all go back to a physical environment, if we do, it's like you will have built a connection, I think, just because people have out of necessity shown you more. So I, I guess I'm just talking out loud. Do you think that this is going to, do you think it's going to be easier to do this when we all go back to a physical environment because we've seen each other at home more often? I think we actually have an expanded ability to do this because we're at home. Um, I've, I've completely stopped and scrapped 
asking the question, you know, oh, how can I convert this meeting or how can I convert this program to a virtual context? That meeting is exhausting. Um, you can't, you can only see if you, if you have video, if you've got people to turn on their video, you've only got 20% of their body showing. You have no proof that they have legs. Like there's, there's all these things that aren't the same about being person. Everybody's on mute. So you can't hear the proverbial eye rolls, the laughter, all that in between um, stuff. And so I've stopped asking the question, how can I convert this to virtual? And I've started asking the question, um, what can we do virtually that we actually cannot do in person? Way more interesting question. And so for me, um, one really concrete example of how I'll create this c connection um, is pulling on this idea that came from uh, Mark Collard, a good friend in Australia um, who runs a company called Playmeo, P-L-A-Y-M-E-O.com. And it's this gigantic online database of group exercises and uh, collaborative learning uh, stuff that is really useful for people to pull on to say, hey, we need to do something active and experiential to mix up this uh, meeting or the, the, the run of the mill kind of stuff we do. Anyway, his idea is uh, the unofficial start. And the concept of the unofficial start is something that um, begins a few minutes before the official start time of the meeting and actually goes after the official start time by a few minutes, because typically we, we reward people for being late to meetings. We say like, oh, I think, I think Carolyn's going to be here. Let's just give her an extra second. And so we uh, punish the people who showed up on time or early, um, or we just kind of sit and twiddle our thumbs or refresh our inbox until 9 a.m. And when the meeting starts and then we jump in. So the official, unofficial start is having something um, as a person running the meeting, having something that sparks immediate and purposeful engagement. So you know, there's a, a number of examples of this. Um, one of the ones that I use uh, frequently is I'll hold up a question, either screen share or this deck of We Connect cards that has 60 questions. I'll hold up a question to the um, camera in the screen and say, hey, just as we're waiting for people to log on, I'm curious to just drop your answer to this question in the chat. Um, as a way of kickstarting our conversation. And it's, again, a question that connects to the purpose of why we're there. It's not just like, uh, you know, what's your favorite food or what's this, right? It's not, not, a, not a purposeless icebreaker question. Okay. And so the uh, idea behind that is you're creating that immediate pur purposeful engagement and it gives you a whole bunch of stuff to be curious about that people have chosen to offer to you. Right. So um, I did this um, with Crayola and just said, what is an interesting skill you have? And the reason I wanted to start off with that question was really framing uh, the whole session under the premise that, you know, they are the experts of their own world and jobs and teams. And so while I'm here to give them some ideas that will hopefully make their uh, work and their communication and connection easier, um, they're the master of uh, what they, uh, their world. And so I want to know, what are you really good at? And so seeing in the chat um, things that come up that, that were both work-related and personal. So there were three people who were really great at scuba diving and somebody else that was hula hooping, but other people who were great at organizing travel. And right. And so seeing all of that in the chat happen, um, especially if you've got a meeting that's not, a, this would be really foolish to do in a one-on-one -on -one meeting, more thinking, uh, you know, you've got a, a staff meeting on Mondays or something. Um, but there's so much data that can uh, come out there that you can then reflect and interact with and creates uh, some more on-purpose connection in that way. So you build the case, and I'm just looking at the title of the book here, Ask Powerful Questions. Do you think it's more important that we do that or just have better answers? <laughs> yeah. A <laughs> um, couple philosophies. I had a mentor that always used to say the best way to kill a question is with an answer. Um, and I think one of the things we do, we, as leaders, uh, we, 
we think that when we answer a question, it has to be answered in final. Like we've got to have the absolute positive way. And you see this in uh, politics lots, right? You can't be wrong. Mm-hmm. And one of the greatest leadership tips that anybody ever offered me was the phrase, my current best thinking is dot, dot, dot. Because as leaders, we soak up all the data po- that we can possibly access in a timely fashion, and we make imperfect choices to move the team forward. And so the phrase, when you're rolling that decision out to say, um, you know, believe it or not, everyone, I don't actually know everything. So my current best thinking is dot, 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 and fill in uh, whatever that is that you're uh, sharing or unpacking. So the the idea of, you know, should we just, should we just, should we get better at asking questions or should we just come up with better answers? I would say in the context of building rapport and relationships of trust with people, we need to up our question game. In the realm of like solving material problems and issues going on that are, uh, you know, very content and work related, we could probably do better at coming up with creative solutions. But the re- you know, we, we didn't, we wrote the book focused around how to uh, build a culture of connection and psychological safety because that was Google's number one characteristic of high performing teams. And so we wanted to say, okay, that's a nice idea, but like, how do you build that? So each chapter un- unpacks a you know, different skill and mindset that moves up that uh, ladder. And, and one of the things that we found in our uh, research is from all the data that exists, um, kids and anybody who has had young kids knows that kids ask on average between 300 and 400 questions per day. And then we go to school and we're taught that we just got to figure out the right answer for the test. And uh, uh, adults on average ask between six and 12 questions per day. And I'm assuming that at least half of those are like, what's for dinner? And when are you coming home? Right. And I, that to me, I'm not, I definitely am not suggesting that we go back to our toddler days and start asking, uh, why is the grass green? Why is the sky blue 300 times? Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say if we were to double our questions, we would double the strength of our connect, double the, our question count. We would double the strength of our connections, um, and uh, double the psychological safety in a given team. If you wanted to put a metric to it, um, like increase your, your, the questions that are rooted in your own natural curiosity about other people. Um, and there's obviously a whole bunch of emotional intelligence that goes in, you know, goes into, you know, when do you ask questions and how do you ask questions, et cetera. Yeah. But I would say, yes, we need better and more creative solutions, but in terms of relationships, uh, there's a national curiosity deficit and questions are what's needed. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to watching the evening news and hearing politicians stand up and say, based on my current thinking, this is the best answer I can give. <laughs> right? Based on my current, be- my current best thinking is wear a mask. Uh- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Man. So since that's, that's not going to happen, let's go back to the world that, that we live in and that is listening to this now. So there may be a newly promoted supervisor who starts their job next week and they can take what we've talked about today and say, man, that's going to be great. I'm going to start using some of those techniques. We're going to use the unofficial start. Or we have the HR professional who's just getting ready to start their role on Monday and they say, boy, you know, I don't want to fall in the trap of the closed door and circling the wagon. So I'm going to begin with this. Fine. They've, they've got a nice clean slate to work with, but Let's talk about the person who is has not done this. So for the boss whose first reaction is to blame somebody for a problem or the HR person who is, 
has not been engaging. And every time you go up to the door, it's closed or whatever. They're the ones that are going to have to do the hard work of shifting. What would you recommend for them, Chad, as maybe a starting point without where they don't feel like their people are going to say, oh, they're up to something or, you know, they just went to training. So we're going to see all these new behaviors. What would be a natural way to start this from someone who's just not known for this? Brilliant question and valuable because probably 98% of people listening are probably in that boat. Um, so I'll channel, channel some wisdom from a teacher and mentor of mine, Eric Tyler, who wrote a book called The Best Advice So Far. And so the, my best advice so far on this is uh, the idea that once you say something, oftentimes half the power leaves it. And so if you recognize, holy smokes, I am, after listening to this, like I'm a really task focused project-oriented person. I have no idea what's going on in the lives of any of the people that I work with. Um, maybe I'm going to test out this unofficial start idea or this connection before content thing and just see how it goes. I would say um, you've got to point out the elephant in the room first. You've got to acknowledge. I would not say just do an unofficial start one day and cross your fingers and hope it works. I would say your unofficial start on day one is, hey, everyone, You've worked with me for two to five to 10 to 30 years. And so, you know, I'm a really task focused person. I tend to just start meetings immediately with the agenda and get into it. Um, I think there's an immense value in being able to access and hear your perspectives and not just have me rambo through the meeting. And so I'd love to do an experiment uh, in creating a little bit of connection before content just to kind of warm us up and get us started today. Blah, 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 and then roll out whatever that uh, question is and whether you're going to split people up into small groups or just invite people to kick out and share. If you don't acknowledge that first, and I would say that what I just modeled there was uh, actually getting really clear about your intention. Um, your intention is acknowledging like, yeah, got it. <laughs> Awareness check. I know that this is how I typically am. And, and maybe even you go and Google Project Aristotle and get your uh, left brain research backing to why you're um, editing and changing this up. The other thing I would say is, uh, because I like questions, I would um, invite people to at least consider taking the risk of asking their team to help keep them accountable to being deliberate about uh, connection before content or unofficial starts or checking in with the group um, before just always diving into work and seeing people as machines and not people. Um, and that that's a much higher level um, accountability and risk for a leader to take. So I'm not suggesting that everybody do that because you got some of you got teams that will definitely keep you accountable. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I some teams that have a pretty good bullshit meter. So yeah. yes. <laughs> right. And so, yeah. And that's the other thing. If, if you're going to try, if you're like, oh, cool, I'm going to like increase psychological safety by doing connection before content for the next four meetings. Um, and I'm like, I'm just going to you know go through the mechanics of it. And hopefully my team will be more innovative or something like that. Bullshit meter will be flaring and the impact that's possible won't happen um, in that moment. It all, if it's not rooted in um, authenticity, then you might as well not do it. That's my opinion. Well, Chad, my, Chad. Cur my current best thinking is that you know a hell of a lot about this stuff and a lot of the people listening today do not. So how can we reach out to you? How can we get the We Connect cards? How can we get a copy of Ask Powerful Questions? How can we engage you to help us in our virtual meetings to be able to 
build better rapport and that psychological safety, how do we find you? Yeah. Thanks for the generous question. My current best thinking is uh, the website weand.me slash ideas um, has a ton of free resources. So we wanted to give access to everyone um, for this stuff. So we actually have a free digital version of our We Connect cards and our We Engage cards, an excerpt from Ask Powerful Questions, um, all available. So weand dot me slash ideas is, uh, is the best place. And if you want the book, you know, all of the stuff is available on, uh, Amazon. If anybody's ever heard of that uh, company before. Have, yeah. So, uh, yeah, feel free to you know, Google, we connect cards or, uh, ask powerful questions and all that stuff will come up real quick. And in terms of actually working together, um, right now, Will and I are running quite a, quite a bit of virtual connection labs um, privately with companies and workshops in how to make uh, virtual and remote engagement easier. And so if you're interested in uh, booking into that, I would say uh, Google uh, We and Me, find our site and uh, just drop us a line. It's, we're not uh, hard to find. We exist to make connection and engagement easy. So we try to make finding us easy too. That makes sense. Well, Chad, I really appreciate spending time with you this afternoon and so glad you could carve out some time for us. And if you are listening to this today, uh, I would strongly encourage you to reach out to Chad and to Will and let them help you navigate this really trying time. It is halfway through this really, really bad year. So you got six months to get it together. And I think Chad, from what uh, my best current thinking is, has some strategies to get you through that. So Chad, thank you so much for spending an afternoon with us today. I think we created a conversation that matters. It was a joy. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Boss Builder Podcast, the podcast for those of you who are new to supervision, those of you in the role and struggling, and even those of you who are thinking about one day making the important transition to management. This podcast is just one resource we have. If you check out our website at greatbosstools.com, you can view some other resources we have there. We'd love to have you as part of our courses. If you're listening to this podcast on any podcast app, we'd also appreciate you taking a few moments to give us a review. Positive, of course, it really helps us out. So with that, take care and get out there and make it your goal to be the absolute best boss ever. Mm -hmm.